welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. All yours, Aoife, so. Okay, perfect. So um, the book obviously is called Range and it's how generalists triumph in a specialized world. And I came across this book uh, when somebody that I'm... Um, connected to on LinkedIn, shared a video about, I'm not sure it was a colleague or a friend, but they had been referred to as a jack of all trades, master of none. And a former boss of mine had said that to me when I was probably in my late 20s. And I kind of carried it my entire career and sort of felt this need to, I have to specialize, I have to specialize. Um, So uh, when somebody commented and shared the details of this book in relation that video I said I had to read it because this is great news for me I can let go of my need to specialize and I can um I can uh I can stay a generalist which is good um and I suppose he says actually on the the start of the book an essential read for bosses parents coaches and for anyone who cares about performance Uh, my oldest son is 17 starting to think about you know what to do with the rest of his life and part of this book is really for anybody who's you know, how do you find your match fit? How do you find what you're supposed to do in the world? Um, so he touches on all that. As I was saying there in the introduction, it's absolutely jam-packed with stories, studies. It, 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 there's just so much in it. You couldn't even gloss over any one page because you, you would miss valuable terms that then, you know, the next piece doesn't make sense. Um, so what I did for the purposes of tonight was I kind of divided into three areas and, and pulled some of the, the key points uh, from it, which hopefully will be helpful. Um, and the three areas are to do with learning, uh, career, and then kind of around culture and the power of culture in organizations. But it's really very relevant for really for everybody. I think everybody could get something from the book. So he opens with um, stories of two sports stars. And the first one he talks about, and they go back to he's a three-month-old baby, and he's shown a picture of a golf club. And by age two, he's almost playing competitively, winning like under 11s. He's on TV at age eight. And of course, it's the story of Tiger Woods. And then the second story he shares is about a tennis player who he says has pulley parents rather than pushy parents. And he is encouraged to explore all sorts of different sports. Um And he only goes to tennis in his late teens. And that's Roger Federer. So we've got two top athletes who have been really, really successful, but one specialized from a very young age um, and one had a much broader range of experience. So he kind of sets the scene, I suppose, that it goes against what we've been told, you know, you have to have 10,000 hours in order to be an expert and you have to have deliberate practice, you know, to, to, to specialize and to be expert in anything. So he kind of wants to sort of um, get us rethinking that, that notion. So in terms of kind of the whole area of learning, he, he introduces us to Jim Flynn. And Jim is a professor in New Zealand. And he comes across a study which says that the IQ of soldiers in World War II um, is much higher than soldiers in World War One. So he throws out the question kind of globally to other um, researchers and finds if there's any similar trends um, and to find that uh, there is. Our verbal and math scores haven't really changed, but our ability to think abstractly or, you know, conceptually has has changed massively. Um, And this has become known as the Flynn effect. And he talks about some really interesting studies in places like Uzbekistan, where there were very remote villages where people had very little education, um, very little contact with the modern world. And what they found was those people had an inability to really classify objects or to think abstractly about things. And as Uh, socialism took over and they had to get involved in collective farming and they became more involved with the modern world. He calls them modern people and the others are are pre-modern. And they notice a difference in how people think. And so, of course, we know, you know, this is what has changed um, for us as humans. And this is what differentiates us from, let's say, AI, uh, where information is plugged into it. And and I suppose we're able to think abstractly and we've got this this big uh, picture thinking. Um, He references something called the Ebenhaus illusion, 
and you can look it up. It's E-B-B-I-N-G-H-A-U-S, illusion. And, and it's two orange circles and around it are blue circles. And in the first circle, the blue circles are quite spread apart and they're tight together um, in the second picture. If you ask any of us which circle is bigger, we're probably going to say the one on the right. But if you ask pre-modern people which one is bigger, they're going to say they're both the same. They're going to see they're both the same. And the reason is that they view things exactly as they are, not linked to other things. So he says, we've gotten to the stage sometimes where we can't see the wood from the trees. So when we look at the orange circle, we see the blue circles all around it together as well. So again, he's starting to get us to think about not getting caught up in details and be able to step away from problems. And and he he develops that kind of thought throughout the um, the, the book as well. Um, he did some research or references some research around uh, relationships between GPA scores and critical thinking skills. So there is no correlation between uh, GPA scores in the US and people's ability to think. Um, and it just actually, it was just watching on the news there this evening before we came on, you know, um, leave, they're saying points, college points are going to be hugely inflated again this September. You know, really, really concerned. Like, we really, I, I think this book is so relevant for looking at how to kind of reform our education system as well and thinking about that. He says, in order to achieve deep learning, we have to create space between the learning and um, I had to do the exact opposite of that in reviewing this book and cram it into the week. And and but he gives the example of students learning Spanish. So they had two groups of students, and they gave them um, lists of vocab. They tested one group the next day, and they tested the other group a month later. Uh, unsurprisingly, the group that were tested the next day were able to recall them much quicker. But actually, when they went back eight years later, the second group were 250% more likely to recall the information. So when we leave space between our, our learning, it allows it to go from short-term memory into long-term memory, and we're more likely uh, to, to remember it. Um, and he calls this actually as well far transfer. Um, so he says, what we want to do is we want to um, create knowledge with enduring utility, which must be flexible, composed of mental schemes that can be matched to new problems. So we want to we take, I suppose, or create our learning, I suppose, where we can adapt it to other situations. And that makes far more flexible uh, learning for us. Um, the piece on, on career um, is really interesting. Um, they did a study on English schools and Scottish schools. And I think the English school system would be similar to us here, where um, when they go into college, they, they specialise quite early. The Scottish system seems to have a lot more flexibility. And what they found was that three quarters of all of us will change career. Um, so we're more than likely not to stick with what we study in college. Um, and that they found that students in English schools will be uh, more likely to change career than students in Scottish schools. Um, and I know from my experience of living in the US as well, you know, it's a much broader system. You get to try out lots of different things uh, rather than being forced at 17 or 18 to specialise and kind of almost, I suppose, penalised then in terms of, of um, when you change. The, he got inspired actually to, to write this book um, after he presented to a group of veterans. Uh, they were military veterans who obviously had done their service and were changing careers. And the feedback from them was so inspiring. And, you know, they had been told, don't change direction, don't change direction. It's the wrong thing to do. Stick with what you know. He mentions the kind of sunk cost fallacy where you've invested so much into something that you just stick with it because you don't want to walk away from everything that you've already invested. But he said, you know, we need to change our mindset from this and and look at life, I suppose, as, as experimentation, which which it is, and just, just trying new experiences all the time. He um, talks about... Uh, point and if any of you have read Angela Duckworth's book on grit he references that quite a bit as well so in West Point um, they've had what he calls a leaky pipeline so since the 1990s um, about half of the West Point cadets and it's really difficult to get into West Point but about half of them have left after five years so they require you um, to do eight years of service five years of it active and then three inactive and in return you get your, your college education paid for which obviously in the US is a really big deal um 
but but half of them are leaving. So they're basically investing in these cadets that leave after after five years. Uh, three quarters of them have left by the time they reach uh, pension age. Um, so they wanted to in some way address this leaky pipeline. And what they noticed was that uh, when they bring these cadets in, they actually force them to specialize quite early on. Um, and so they're segmented into their different areas of specialization. Um, and they've now created a talent branching program where they get to try uh, different areas of, of you know, military service. Um, and that has really helped in their retention of cadets uh, within, within West Point. Um, he tells a really interesting story about a little boy who loves nature, is a great observer of nature, um, but is kind of forced to go to a strict school, doesn't do well in school, um, eventually gets a job through family in an art dealership, doesn't do very well there. His father gets him a job um, in a bookstore, doesn't do well there, decides to try teaching, uh, decides he'd be a pastor, um, got kicked out of pastor training school, uh, decided he would just give sermons anyway for free, but people bored of him. And it goes on and on and on and all these different, um, you know, sort of failed careers, let's say. And eventually at 33 decides that he will learn art and he will decide to learn how to paint and draw. Um, he lasts three weeks and gets told he needs to go back into the under 10s beginner art class. Um, but he decides to continue with it anyway. Anyway, and he gets his oil paints and his easel. And one day in the middle of the storm, this is how the story goes, um, kind of freed from all restrictions, he uh, creates what would be the first of Van Gogh's uh, works of art. And he only lived three or four years, I think, after that and spent his entire life experimenting. And he calls that match fit optimization. Um, and it's said that Van Gogh. Um, called himself or referred to himself as a bird in a cage. So he knew he had something that he wanted to contribute. He knew he had something that he wanted to offer, um, but he didn't quite know what it was. And he kept he kept going. He kept trying. Um, and I thought that was really inspiring, you know, because so many people are like trying to figure out what it is I'm supposed to be doing, um, and and to I suppose have that freedom to be able to keep trying that is is, is really interesting. Um, yeah, he also talks about Frances Hesselbein, and I had heard of her, but I didn't know her story. So she has a leadership institute. I think she's almost 100 and, and still alive and still working. Um, and she left college, had to drop out of college because her father died uh, to look after the family. She married, had her son. She assisted her husband in the photography business. And when her son got a little bit older, decided she would just start volunteering. And she um, was recruited to volunteer for the Girl Scouts and spent many, many years volunteering with them and was eventually, you know, in leadership roles and got invited to New York uh, when she was in her 60s um, and asked to be CEO of the Girl Scouts of, of America. And because she did not want the role and didn't think that she would get the role, again, being kind of freed from restrictions, she laid out exactly what she was what she would do if she was CEO. And she said, and this, was, I think, was back in the 70s, um, she said she wanted to focus on, on maths and sciences for girls and she wanted to focus on diversity and inclusion. This was very, you know, progressive for the time. Um, and she got the job. And Peter Drucker, who I'm sure you've heard of, um, said that she was the best CEO of any organization and that she could run GM. So and, and you know, she she runs her leadership institute now. And I suppose when she's asked about her career journey, uh, the story she tells is that she never had a long term plan. She never had a vision. She never wanted to be CEO. She always just focused on the projects and the opportunities that were ahead of her. Um, and that's what he's suggesting that we do. You just you let go of the kind of long term plan and what you want to be when you grow up and and you just take opportunities that come your way. And you just she said that, you know, she focused on what she could learn from every situation um, and she just took the most of that and kind of embraced those opportunities. Um, and a study in Harvard has actually shown that um, people who take a winding path is actually more the norm. And um, for those of us that have taken winding paths, and I certainly have, uh, we think we're the only one, but actually um, it seems to be quite the norm. And then this is interesting. He calls it this history of illusion. So what has been shown is that we all know how different we are to the people we were 10, 20 years ago, even yesterday, he says. Um, so we're very aware of how much we've grown and changed as, as people. 
but we don't seem to think that we're going to change and grow in the same way. Sorry, I'm turn off my phone. In the same way in the next, you know, five, 10 years. He says we change hugely. Our, our biggest time for change and growth is between 18 and 29. Yet at 18, 19, when we're making decisions about what we're going to do for the rest of our life, we're basing those decisions on a person who doesn't even exist yet or even decisions that you make today, it's for a person who actually doesn't exist yet. So how can we actually even plan ahead or make career decisions? So you focus on the short term and you focus on the opportunities that are there for you. Um, he then talks about something called the context principle. So he talks about the marshmallow test, which you're probably familiar with. They, you know, put um, marshmallows in front of children. You get one marshmallow um, if you want it now, but if you wait, you get two marshmallows. But what they looked at afterwards was they looked at how the children behaved. So they watched children. They Some children covered their eyes so that they wouldn't eat the marshmallows. Some started singing, some looking up to the ceiling, like whatever the children did. And he brings in the idea here of grittiness. So they were kind of looking at like how, how gritty the child, like their effort in not having the marshmallows. Um, and he says, it's not really about if we are gritty, it's when we, um, when we choose to be gritty. So we can choose to be gritty at different times uh, based on whether there's kind of a match fit in terms of like if we really want something. So we know that, you know, if it's really important to you, you know, you can, you can be gritty um, and, and, and hold out for it. What they found was um, when people did have career transitions and change, um, there was certain themes. So it was usually um, there was a life experience, there was a, um, a move somewhere. Something usually happens that is an impetus um, for somebody to change. And for people that don't change careers, it, it may be because, you know, they, they haven't experienced maybe some of those big changes. And I know for me, like I've moved country a bunch of times and things like that. And, and you, you're kind of forced into into changing. Um, so then the, the third piece is kind of around um, creativity, innovation and, and problem solving. And this is where he goes back to the initial idea kind of of, of adaptability and creating these mental schemes or how we think about things right and how we how we approach our problems and, and decisions that we have to make so he talks about um i think it was called pieta house orphans so it was back in the 1700s and it was an orphanage and the children in this orphanage um their mothers would have been uh, prostitutes and many of them would have had syphilis so when the babies were born a lot of them had deformities so these musicians would usually play behind a screen. Nobody ever saw them, but they became renowned throughout Europe, um, played with Vivaldi and, and people would go to listen to them. But what was amazing about them was they had no special training. There was no deliberate practice. There was no training from morning to night. They just picked up any instrument that was there. So the one common factor between all of them was adaptability and versatility. And so what he's saying is it's breadth of experience and it's being able to apply what you learn to other skill levels. And he talks about um, um, a guitarist who, because there was no guitar for him to learn on, he learned on, I think it was the clarinet, like literally random instruments. But because you can then adapt that and take that to different situations um, that allows you to develop expertise in that way. Um, he talks about kind learning environments or wicked learning environments, and I hadn't come across this before. So kind learning environments are environments where um, we experience things regularly, kind of for most of us our day to day. So even if you come up against a problem, maybe you've solved it before, maybe it's, you know, you can do it fairly routinely. But wicked learning environments are ones where you haven't experienced that environment before. So he says, you know, um, in order to be able to to cope, I suppose, in wicked learning environments, you have to develop this adaptability. And for what the research has shown that for many experts, they don't actually have this adaptability to be able to cope in wicked learning environments. So um, he talks about even, you know, surgeons and um, they develop this, I suppose, deliberate practice and this expertise, but most of it is actually based on kind of on, on habits, you know, and, and it's, and it's um, repetitive uh, as skilled as it is. Um, but then, then you come into a kind of wicked learning environment where you haven't experienced something before and you, and you have to rely on, on a different form of thinking. Um, 
he talks about 80% of the decisions by firefighters are actually um, what they call chunking. And it's it's based on patterns. Um, and if any of you saw um, The Queen's Gambit on Netflix about the, the chess player, and she visualizes um, the chessboard and, and she visualizes patterns on the chessboard. So rather than knowing what to do in every situation, you follow patterns all the time. So firefighters do this and many specialized people do this. And um, he talks about airline crews do this. So so they work so routinely um, that it's that it's standard. But actually, um, the I think it's called the NATA has found that uh, most um, air travel accidents happen when you have a new team working together um, and so they haven't kind of developed their pattern of working um, so we need to focus on this kind of this adaptability to be able to work in these different um, environments really interesting story of Laszlo Polgar. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. Um, he decided that he his mission in life was to create geniuses. And he was going to do this through finding a wife and having children and creating geniuses. And he did that and he had three girls and he decided their area of specialization would be chess. And from a very young age, they were taught chess. They were homeschooled. Their entire day was get up. Uh, they played table tennis, I think, in the morning and they had went home, had breakfast and from 10 a.m. they played chess for the whole day. Um, and it worked because, um, and he gives all the stats, I mean, his three children at one stage were three of the four members of the Hungarian uh, national chess team. They became world-class chess players. Um, Polgar, you can look it up actually, Polgar, uh, he created his own guide to basically creating geniuses. So for those of you with young children, there you go. You can, it's a bit late for me, but you can follow, follow his steps. Um, but what, what David Epstein, the author, would say is that chess isn't like life chess you can follow patterns he would describe that as a kind learning environment um, but it doesn't um i suppose create the adaptability to be able to function well in in a wicked learning environment um cognitive entrenchment is another term that he uses where we get so caught up in the details of something that we can't see the big picture and they have found that uh, forecasters are actually really poor forecasters um, because they get so caught up in the detail, they're actually more inclined to be optimistic about it. Um, and so, you know, having an outside perspective on that is, is really helpful. Um, he talks about then um, using analogies to solve our problems. He introduces us to Johann Kepler, who developed astrophysics, again, who I'd never heard of. Um, and at the time that he developed astrophysics, people thought that the planets moved um, because of dead people's, the souls of dead people. And so how did he get from that to understand Understanding the how planets actually move, um, and and seemingly it's from analogies. It's from looking at what we did know about the world at that time, and then using those analogies to create astrophysics and study that. Um, and actually, Boston Consulting Group have put on their intranet um, different stories from history. He talks about William the Conqueror, Prussian history so that their business analysts and consultants um, can go in and read about other stories from history and then learn from those and use analogies um, to solve today's problems. So it's really interesting. So if you're kind of in the middle of stuck in a problem, you know, step outside of it, look at other problems, which he said might structurally be the same, and then try and apply that to your own problem. Um, I thought really interesting, like in the middle of a pandemic, you know, and trying to figure out what to do and everything that uh, if, uh, if those in charge use analogies and things like that. Um, then he uh, talks about Carl Dunker. And um, um, you may have heard of this, but I hadn't um, seemingly one of the biggest, um, most well-known sort of problems um, is a patient, there's a patient with a tumour. And if the doctor doesn't do something about the tumour, the patient will die. The only way to cure the tumour is a ray, um, intense rays, which will actually kill off all the healthy tissue as well. So when that problem is given to people, um, only about 10% of the people solve the problem. When they 
share a second problem, which is there's a general and he wants to attack a particular fortress, um, but they have to attack it at the same time. His whole army has to attack it at the same time. When participants are given that story, along with the other one, about 30% of them will solve it. The third story that they're given is there is a wood cabin on fire and the fire chief comes along and he sees everybody going from the lake to the house with their buckets of water one at a time to put out the fire. He calls halt and he tells everybody to surround the wood cabin with their bucket of water and that they're all to throw their water on at the exact same time. When people are given that story, 80% of them solve the first story. And or the first problem. And the solution to the first problem is that the intense rays be broken up into individual rays so that it attacks it all together, but it's not at one spot. So it kills the tumor, but it doesn't kill the healthy tissue. So his point being that when we can, when we learn about other stories and analogies in other stories, it can help us draw conclusions from a previous problem that maybe we couldn't we couldn't see uh, beyond. He says most people tend to stay inside their problems and have an inside view. Um, really um, interesting about Innocentive. Don't know if anybody has heard of that or Kaggle. Um, and again, you can look them up as well. So there was an oil spill off the coast of Alaska. Um, it happened, I think, in 1997. And in 2007, the oil was still stuck to the coast of Alaska. They couldn't figure out how to get rid of it. Um, and one of the lead scientists there, or researchers, suggested that they put that problem out to, you know, the public space and see what somebody with an outside perspective might be able to solve it. So they put it up, I think it was on their website. Um, and a guy who, uh, he was a lead chemist or something somewhere, but uh, in his youth, he had helped a neighbour to lay a concrete path and he had seen how to stop concrete sticking together. And it was through this thing called a concrete vibrator so he suggested what about if they use something like that for the oil and it would help the oil to stop sticking together and it actually worked and so they created this website called Innocentive so if any of you want to look it up and they companies around the world put challenges up there I had my kids look at it because you can earn 30 40 50,000 and they're always telling me they don't need school and they can think I said go go for it see if you can solve any of these problems um, and the other one is Kaggle and I think that's to do with artificial intelligence and um, J&J puts problems up there I mean it's really interesting we were looking at one today Volkswagen puts problems up there about um, I think clean air or something so and they just want people you know with an outside perspective who's not involved in it um, to see if, if they can solve these problems. Um, and just kind of finishing up the last few stories, um, the story of Nintendo and how that got started. Um, uh, it, it was a Japanese card shop, game shop, um, and this they didn't have much money to hire um, uh, any really qualified graduates. Uh, this particular student, um, Yoki was his name, uh, didn't really have great grades, so he didn't have a huge amount of job options either. Um, he got a job in the company. His very first um, design was an extendable arm, and that was because he was too lazy to pick things up. Um, he developed a little, um, <laughs> go for it, John, just you have to, I take commission, so you can... Uh, <laughs> um, he developed a little driving race car, but it would only turn left. So the title for this chapter is Lateral Thinking with Withered Technology. So again, it's about thinking outside the box, but it's about using very simple technology. Yoki was on the train on his home from a business conference when he saw a person opposite him playing with their calculator to stem off boredom. And he thought, how cool would it be to have a little game that could fit in your pocket like this? And there was this was back, I think, in the 80s. Um, and he happened to pitch the idea to his boss, who happened to be meeting with this sharp. Sharp calculators were facing a lot of competition at the time, and they were looking for ways to use their little LCD screens. And they decided to create the first Game Boy with these little LCD screens. So it's the story of, of Nintendo. And, and he goes into more details about that. It's really interesting. Um, the 
the most famous um, business case studies. And this is where he kind of goes into to culture. And, and I just shared something yesterday on Twitter about, um, you know, the Davy Stockbroker um, thing this week. Um, and he talks about uh, Car- the Carter case study. Um, and seemingly it's a case study that's given to business students around the world. Um, and they have to make a decision about whether a race car will drive or not. And they're given some um, information in terms of the temperature and engine failure. Um, but they're not given all the information. So he goes to the whole, you know, how the students are trying to figure out whether the race car will drive or not. And they go back to class and they're, um, I suppose, defending their decision to their professor. And they kind of come to the conclusion that they didn't really have all the information. And the professor says to them, "Um, do you know that I said in class four times, if you need additional information, come and ask for me. But as students, they didn't feel like they could go and ask their professor. They assumed they were given all the information. And he he says that case study is actually based on the Challenger disaster in NASA. And because NASA has a really culture, even though people, engineers around had a hunch that something wasn't right, a hunch wasn't good enough to question a decision within NASA. You had to have data to back it up. And so he says, you know, the fallacy, I suppose, of like a really data-driven, process-driven culture uh, can be a real negative too, that sometimes um, you have to have that openness to question. Um, And and in in the Nintendo story as well, um, he talks about the different things that they developed over the years. And it was always because people felt comfortable to kind of question things. And what do you think about this? And, you know, he says, you should never develop a culture where people don't feel comfortable to question and ask the questions. Um, He talks about science and some of the greatest science experiments have been by deliberate amateurs. Um, Scientists going in on a Saturday morning and kind of just tinkering away with things and figuring things out. Again, the kind of freed from restrictions, I suppose. And the last little few points just from his um, conclusion, because I thought he, he kind of said them very nicely, was... Um, stories of success can appear a straightforward line, but in reality, they're much murkier. And I remember somebody doing a presentation once about her own kind of career journey and success. And it was like a really squiggly line rather than a one, you know, straightforward line. I think that's reassuring for all of us. Um, he says experimentation can be inefficient. It requires motivation and a tolerance for failure. The more failures you churn out, the more likely you are to achieve success. He says, going where no one has is a wicked problem, right? So kind of a challenging environment. Uh, Julius Caesar is said to have broken down when he saw a statue of Alexander the Great in Spain because he felt he had done nothing with his life. And he says, compare yourself to yourself yesterday, not to younger people who aren't you. Um, For the proactive pursuit of match quality, start planning experiments. So rather than the long-term vision, just continually keep experimenting and trying. He says, approach your own life and projects like Michelangelo approached a block of marble, willing to learn and adjust as you go, even to abandon a previous goal and change directions entirely. Because seemingly Michelangelo didn't have any vision of what his block of marble would turn into. He just started chipping away. And he says, as Oliver Wendell Holmes, Supreme Court Justice, wrote a century ago, it's all an experiment, life experiment. And he closes out with saying that the phrase jack of all trades was actually is actually being misquoted, basically. And it's kind of jack of all trades, master of none, uh, better than none or something like that. So that it actually, even though we consider it to be negative now, that it's really it never was. So. That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> um, hopefully everybody got something from it. But, you know, as I say, like I had to condense it and condense it. There's so many stories in it. And I think it's a book that you could pick up and take a chapter, you know, on its own and just kind of you could take a lot of nuggets and stuff from it. So um, there you go. But better than a master of one. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's amazing. Uh, thank you. Um, it, it's just incredible. Like every word of, of this guy and you've done such a credit to the book. I, I just kept nodding all the time. It's like, I, I agree was, was, was everything. Um, um, uh, especially on the culture. Uh, the, the, it's, 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 it, it's impossible to achieve anything in the, in the environment where people have fear. 
And um, I think we mentioned in so many previous talks uh, that um, only if um, people are, are free to share and, and be silly and, and ask silly questions, uh, they can grow on through the mistakes they can achieve uh, and through the experimenting. So, um, yeah, and he talks about playfulness actually being really important in creativity. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And I was talking to somebody last week who works in a a medical device company and he was saying, you know, how data driven, like he actually used that term. Um, So, yeah. I'm just looking at something from me up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, another Van Gogh. Uh, Van Gogh. um, I never know how to say his name. Van Gogh, Van Gogh, either one, depending where you're from. (laughs) That's a great film, actually. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. What's the name of the author again? Because I can't wait. I have to get it on Kindle tonight. So. <laughs> <laughs> David um, Epstein, E-P-S-T-E-I-N. He's a sports writer. I think he's written another book. David Epstein. Epstein, okay. yeah. Yeah. Sports yeah. Gene as well. What did he write? Sports Gene, it's called. Mm-hmm. That's uh-huh. it. That's it. Yeah. 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 But when I um, like literally my alarm, when I woke up, it was morning Ireland, I think it was Monday morning. And they were talking about the culture of Davy stockbrokers and that nobody felt comfortable to speak up. Mm-hmm. And that's why this happened, you know, and that's time and time again. Is, isn't there, um, was it on this book club? Somebody said about um, some air crash and that and, the co-pilot the didn't feel, well. yeah. Wasn't the that ho- the hospital and everything. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, same thing. Mm-hmm. Is there anything from Malif that that you've kind of put already into practice from what you've learned? Um, Well, I think it makes me feel better about myself, (laughs) first of all. Um, And I think it gives me more confidence. now and just this pressure on CAO and college and just this you know there's so many so much of the system has to change and I think there still is this assumption that you have to kind of specialize and and he says you know people who do specialize they will get a leg up right after college you will earn more money but then around the eight-year mark you start to see kind of itchy feet and people want to change and like oh it's not really what I want to do and um so I'd love to see changes in that and I'd love to see that it's okay to try different things and that you know maybe college is about exploring rather than defining you know um but for do you me, think, do you think, yeah. guys, that uh, we are kind of approaching now? We are in that space now where people can change. Because I know from my at work, I know guys that joined us uh, after going back to engineering late in life, and I know from people. I, I, I for some reason I know a lot of people who went into law late in life. Like, is that a thing or something where you go back to college and study law? <laughs> You can do you can do these convert these courses where it's like yeah. you pay an extortionate amount of money to do it in a year. <laughs> yeah, my friend. No, not even not even that. No, I just know people who've gone from engineering and gone into law. Uh, or oh. uh, I met a guy who was a physicist uh, with a PhD and went into law. You know, mm. um, but that's I think I can I can see people doing it now more than maybe ten or fifteen years ago. Yeah. So maybe we're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the other side, from my own experience, I, if I do something new and uh, meet people who are doing it for years, it's great to give uh, to give and receive kind of a different perspective on things. And mm-hmm. I think that's uh, always refreshing. Yeah. yeah. Also, if you do want to change, like being a specialist can go against you because if you're applying for something totally different, like you have no other experiences. So, Yeah. Yeah. Are we going towards a world where they people we're going to want everyone to be a generalist? Like you'll be penalized for being a specialist almost. Does he talk about that in the book or um no, but I, I wonder if even if you're specialized, if you can show breadth of experience in within that, you know, that you've tried different things 
within it, I suppose. So, so you're an expert in a particular area, but maybe there's still a breadth of experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know. I, I, I um, benefited hugely uh, from uh, IBM T-shaped skills program. Um, it, it was called, and the the idea was that um, they selected group of people i just was lucky it was on a good project so we achieved good results and early in my career i was put in that program which was called t-shaped and it was precisely that you got one core um profession and in my case it was project management and then you are getting the t-shape so you are then rotated through many different uh, experiences teams to pick up other um, knowledge and that was massively beneficial. Um, not only uh, I've I've gone through um, um, working in so many different uh, areas, uh, but also the the uh, the people that that I worked alongside, um, I, I found it really really great. And that's that's why like if you have if you have the the one core and then you continuously gaining the skills um, to support that core or even then pivot into something new is what you already have uh, got like in the book make time that the authors uh, described um, that 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 would be great for for young generation (laughs) yeah and actually he says even organizations have specialized so much that one department doesn't know what the other department Mm -hmm. is doing and that came up last week and somebody was talking to him and he said, you know, he works in quality and he said, finance have no idea. We've no idea what each other's lives look like from a work perspective. And and so he wanted to build more communication between that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you have you heard of Seth Gordon? Um, he's, he's talking about the education and young generation. And I just love that YouTube lecture that he gives um and the the point of it that you know education needs to change um we 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 can't be continue preparing obedient children we need to start investing into the children then can learn how to solve interesting problems and have to lead and that's actually what your author is saying as well exactly and he actually quotes him and and he gives another example of a math teacher uh, teaching children um, a particular concept and what the children keep trying to do is they keep trying to ask for hints to turn it into what he says a procedure like two plus two equals four mm-hmm. but then he he says in Japan because they, they videotaped all the different teachers in Japan um, they they created what they call generation effect so she just got the children to just generate ideas mm-hmm. and she just captured all the ideas then on the board and it actually didn't matter what, whether they got the problem or not but it was mm-hmm. actually in the generating of ideas yeah and um, because he says that's how we develop our learning and our ability to solve complex problems so not whether we're right or wrong yeah. um brilliant yeah and I do think as I see it in my children's education I, I think that they're definitely certainly in primary getting that's getting better I think at that you know and it's about exploring different things and, you know, so, yeah, yeah. That's changing the mindset from getting in trouble for getting something wrong, right? When you're in school, you get a black mark for yeah. doing something wrong or, or not doing your homework or whatever. And that, that like, is instilled in you then, even mm-hmm. in our generation, right, that that would probably be a lot different now because you don't get reprimanded half as much i would imagine yeah. for yeah. for being yeah. wrong but um but just on the 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 t-shape and we've written about stuff like this and it's there's another model where you would create an e-shape so you actually become a what we talk about as a versatilist instead of a generalist mm-hmm. or a specialist you become a versatilist mm-hmm. so you can you can wave in and out, or maybe an M shape if you want to turn it on its side. Mm-hmm. But um, it, to to deep it, dive in, come out, and go back in again. And there's another yeah. term that we like to use in Gartner because we come up with good terms like that. Um, creating a diamond shaped career, so you instead of just go up your ladder, you go laterally as well, and then kind of jump up so you can kind of create that a lattice or a diamond shape so um there's a lot more talk yeah. about that now because it it in, in it creates a greater 
bench strength in an organization when you have versatilists because you don't have single points of failure for somebody leaving anymore and you're creating um you know different skills and competencies how does this work then if people are applying for jobs and you've got kind of you know your cv's like thrown through a computer and never seen by anybody and you know you don't have the keywords and you're just put a video um cover letter in yeah yeah, it's actually the whole such an interesting topic. There's there's very little um, short book that that I've written and it's, uh, sorry I've, I've read and, and written Aston Clear and I think um, show your work. Have you heard about it? But the point of it is um, that nowadays if you show your work video or whatever and it's out there, the work finds you. You don't ever need to actually be sending TV. Um, people see what you do and how you're solving problems and then you know where you work people know you and it kind of a you don't really see we become is becoming redundant your own you know brand website you you write hopefully it's about what you do and you talk about it and then people come <laughs> that's the cool. whole new topic isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah kind of flipping the whole process mm. yeah that, that's that, that's what you meant as well rob show your video yeah, like I, the last job I went for an interview for, I put a video cover letter in. It was like four minutes and just talking about what I'm interested in and what I want to do. And you have a CV as well, but it was definitely um, different. And it, you know, certainly gave me the opportunity to get, get the foot in the door. And then once that, yeah. you, you, once you get yeah. the conversation, you, you know, yeah. it's all on you then. So, yeah, yeah. it's it's such a great and for and for advantage that that. That we we can actually do this nowadays, you know, yeah. the way you've done it with the video. You're probably the only were the only one that that put the video. Uh, May, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but uh, like yeah, like again, I and I, I talked. I think I interviewed somebody a year ago about CVs and stuff like that, and mentioned that, and she said she had seen a little bit more of that. It's not even a video. I think the piece of advice I was given about twelve years ago when I was applying for another job and he said, Have you what's your digital echo like? And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I didn't have a Twitter account, right? At the time. And he was like, Can if if we put your name in, what'll come up on, on, on Google and do you have a body of content that you can direct people to and to show you're serious about the work you're doing. So that always stuck with me. Um so just create a positive digital echo and see what happens, you know. Mm. Somebody was such a visionary 12 years ago. <laughs> oh, I didn't start 12 years ago, definitely not. He he did though, but he, he was, it was in a kind of a marketing space and mm-hmm. the, the guy was yeah doing keynote addresses and he was just, he said like that's what he had been working on for a few years, putting together um mm. a content just that what people could find and yeah he was definitely ahead of ahead of the game so good yeah. advice i i've heard that as well i've heard people mention that and um, i watched a, a really interesting video on youtube um a few weeks ago about the lady who, who was talking about tearing apart your cv burning it up and rather than focusing on honing your cv you know the way they say match your cv to the job description she was she, her her thing was to kind of break apart all the work that you've done and find your core competencies and then just look for work that call out to those core competencies. I I did it as an exercise myself. It was literally just getting cue cards down, throwing them down the bed and seeing what the similarities were between the different jobs because I'm very much a generalist and (laughs) I've been called a jack of all trades my whole life. But what came up for me was advocacy. So now I've started to actively look for roles that are in the advocacy space and through my college work I've started kind of really actively you know kind of working on projects that are the focus on advocacy and I find that I'm actually a lot happier in myself when I'm doing something like that you know so it was, it was an interesting um it, I'll, I'll dig out the video and and I might share it with you Rob just just so that maybe you can share it out to people because it was a really the, the lady who did it, her background was in theatre, so it was a really interesting presentation on it as well. Yeah. Back to your point, Aoife, actually, the people with the different um, diversity uh, bringing the, the completely new perspective. And Yeah, yeah. And I think that's great advice. Figure out your core competencies. And I think what this 
book does, it, it validates, you know, um, the experience that you get in other, other experience, in other work or whatever. And, you know, you can, how you can bring that with you as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Aoife, excellent review. Loads of, loads of pointers for us there. So thanks a million. Um, I just, uh, I, I remember hearing a stat and I, I just wanted to Google it to check that it was true, but LinkedIn did a study um, and they found that the average person will have four career changes by the time they're 32 now, if they're starting off. And when they say career changes, they're not just referring to roles, they're kind of referring to roles in different industries are quite dramatically different to so not just company changes but doing the same work um actually quite radically different changes um so very interesting that's amazing yeah so again as the parent of a 17 year old to think that that he would do that yeah so yeah so so yeah what does he study what do you do to prepare yours yeah yeah it's interesting absolutely and maybe ties into what jenny was saying earlier about like really understanding from a positive psychology perspective, what the strengths are yeah, and what, um, you know, kind of captures your son's attention. Mm. What, what, where does he tap into flow? Mm. And then how can he use that? Because, um, you know, they're the, the, what core competencies is he strong at? Yeah. Yeah. And his role. And probably there's lots and lots of different ways he can. Yeah. And, and back to Rob's term of mm. versatility. So how yeah. can we be very versatile then to take and what David Epstein said in the book to take advantage then of the experiences. So rather than kind of going on a long term vision, you're very versatile, you know yourself. And then how can you take advantage of, of whatever mm. experiences? So, yeah. <gasps> what was the it was the innocentive? Is that? Yeah. Innocentive. Yeah. You see the Netflix um, diagnosis, the, the New York Times thing, where they basically put out um, people had conditions and illnesses that they just couldn't figure out. So they put it out to the web just to ask people from all over the world just to give their two cents on what it possibly could be. And a bunch of people, just ran, people from all walks of life came together and basically solve these really complex medical cases. Well, he's got an amazing story. Like Literally, I mean, there just wouldn't be time to share every story, but of this woman who has muscular dystrophy. Um, so I think she's got a lack of fat on her limbs. And she saw a picture of um, an Olympian who was very well built, but she could see, I think, in her arms that she had the same condition. And she was actually able to match... Um, her condition to this Olympians and eventually got them to do gene testing and that they had the same gene. She actually managed to save her father's life because it turns out he had the same gene as well. Mm. I mean, absolutely crazy. Yeah. Literally he has that in the same chapter as the innocentive, the outside perspective and just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's crazy to watch like um, a bunch of just like there's one where like a 16 year old from some far flung place gets in touch to say, I have this, this is what fixed me, but they don't know what it is. And it's really, it's worth watching this series. It's fab. Cool. Humans are amazing, aren't we? (laughs) You know, in terms of, because, uh, well, I'm hugely reassured Aoife by what you were saying in the book. I was like, thank God, I don't have, have a big plan I know exactly <laughs> forget it <laughs> throw it out I can just turn up and do that exactly <laughs> there, there's reassurance in that but but some of the stuff is that you were talking about uh was about one of the reasons why I, I suppose I I left the pharmaceutical world was because I got very frustrated in my although I was in a mental health arena which was pretty big I suppose I I was able to see and I had seen from being in nursing as well how the more specialized someone became in their particular arena in medicine, um, the more likely that they saw you as an organ. It stopped seeing you as a person. and, And very often it became a very wonderful system if you had something very unusual wrong with you because, you know, yeah. there was expertise in that area, but actually wholly unsatisfying if, you know, you, you, you needed more than just that system being fixed yeah. because 
the medication given for that would mean that you'd have side effects in another system, which meant you were diverted to another specialist. To, uh, and he talks and about that and he says it's a joke that you're a left ear surgeon. You know, you're not even an ear, you're just a left ear surgeon. So he talks about exactly that. Yeah. And, and why in America, you know, my, my brother lived in America for a long time. He said it's the perfect place to get a rare, weird disease because there is probably a specialist for it. <laughs> You know, which is amazing if you have that rare medical disease, but maybe less, uh, I suppose, useful for a greater number in general day to day life. So, yeah. yeah, and that's huge for medical, I think. And for you always hear of that people with conditions and there's no communication between different whatever, you know, specialists. And yeah, there's no holistic sort of. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I, and it is about what struck me when you were talking about it was, I mean, around leadership and, and around understanding that there's more than your perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose for any expert to be able to identify that theirs is only a very particular narrow viewpoint and that there are others involved, it's like a good leader to go, well, this is what I'm thinking, but, but what does someone else in the organization think or how does it look like from their place? Now, now we have now we have a lot of information and a lot of tools available to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. He said Eli Lilly as well were one of the first to put all their problems, so challenges that their scientists couldn't solve, and they threw them up on the website. Um, I must look and see actually if they're still doing that. Yeah. I, I worked with with Eli Lilly, oh, they were the company oh. I was with in in mental health, and and and. They, they were great, particularly in the mental health arena and, and you know, came out with, they were the Prozac people, which revolutionized mm. uh, mental health and, and then in schizophrenia and that arena too. Um, and so there's good in all of, you know, there's good in speciality and it's, mm. I think, isn't it always yin and yang? There's always the balance between understanding that we need speciality and we need the generalists. Yeah, because if, if Van Gogh hadn't kept going, kept going until he got exactly the oil paints on that, you know, we wouldn't have that work. But yeah, he had to experiment with loads of things to get there. Yeah. yeah. There always that organization struggle between, you know, getting promoted to your level of incompetence. So you're a brilliant specialist, brilliant specialist, brilliant mm. specialist. We know if to go, mm. you charge of those 10 people there and all of a sudden they lose their magic. Yeah. So like, I think there's probably two things. One, having a defined path for specialists and two, probably valuing the the generalist really because if you are a highly emotionally intelligent generalist, you could probably work in any industry really. Yeah. It's about it's about the people, you know, rather than the, than the technical expertise. Yeah, I think so. And there's often the narrative, particularly in, you know, in a, in a competitive environment, you know, where do you want to be in five years? Well, I might just still want to be picking here brand mm. because actually I'm really good at it. I like it. I'm happy for the lads or girls to pass me, but it doesn't matter. I'm good. Yeah. But you, that's not that's not PC. You have to say you want your job. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and will that organically change as back to Sarah's point of, you know, if the kind of the 18 year olds now will have four job changes by their career changes by the time, you know, will will cultures just have to change then in line with, you know, if that's the norm for them? I don't know. So I that's presume, kind of the next 15 years. So. Yeah, mm. I presume so. Mm. I'll be still figuring out what I want to be when I grow up anyway. hopefully somewhere warm though (laughs) i follow incredibly successful young people in their 20s um one guy already referenced so many times a young doctor from cambridge who studied this medicine and just worked on his side uh, um side passion side business and uh um now in a position that uh, he can he can choose to work as a doctor or he didn't have to. And and then similarly, uh, another lady who also studied in the university and went in the big world and realized in the first few years that it's not what she was thinking of it to be. The support that she got, the culture of the company, everything didn't fit with her and just uh, likewise left it behind and uh, 
started her own um, side business and and it's all to do with the content generation and really producing the value for people and uh, making it happen and it's incredible like quite a lot of them you know really young age just being so bold think life is not about doing what you're not happy with um being brave and yeah, I think it's probably the next generation coming because we're probably still the generation where, you know, our parents worked for 40 years for the one comp, whatever, you know, so. Look it out. We will look it out, you know, yeah. resilient. Yeah, the yeah. new generation now, like, yeah. yeah. None of that. Yeah, I know. And, and I think golden handcuffs make it hard for for people, you know, to, to believe the amount of people who, who end up, yeah. Right. It, it pays well to lead sort yeah. of philosophy. That's a big one, you know, really big one. Uh, yeah, which is which is awful. And yeah, I can understand why. But yeah, one of the one of the biggest, um, not the biggest, the most kind of impactful advice um, that I've seen in several books, including Tim Ferriss. Um, interviewing more successful people and few more now is that um, if you if if you if you're able to 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 just get by with what you have um, and, and you have a little bit save and you don't need to worry about the mortgages and the rest that's what actually gives you the the power and courage and uh, an ability to to change the, the direction and, and say the things that, that are really impactful and have those hard, difficult conversations. Um, I don't know if, if anyone... If, if that's well, it's the kind of the balance that I want to be free, but then I also have to pay my mortgage kind of thing, you know, so, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm definitely going to read this book. I've got yeah. it on my ever-growing list. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Lilianipa. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I, I, I volunteered the after I'd only read the first chapter, but I'm glad I did that because it, it pushed me to, you know, read it properly. And so, thank you so much. Yeah. Really, really good. Really good. Definitely, it's on my list for sure. Great. 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 Do you have notes that you can share with us? Yeah. And will I will I just use? Um, I see Marion's uh, template there. Um, yeah. I'm just um, going to so, download that. So send me, send me the um, um, your stuff, and I will plug it in in the same template. I, I pay for the subscription. It's similar to Canva. Mine one is in WizMe because I use it for infographics, and uh, yeah, I, I adapted it just to as you can see there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Oh yeah. Oh, lovely. Okay. Really cool. Great. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice one. Thanks, Aoife. And as always, we have a, a big queue of people coming up behind you to uh, put themselves forward. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get that offline anyway. Um, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks for more fun, more learning. Pressure's off, Aoife. You're in the, um, you're in the, the, the two. The, I've done the, my two. So unless two. somebody steps up and does a third now, then yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm good for now. <laughs> Sarah's trying to hold her hand from going up there to go for the hat trick, so we'll wait, wait off. <laughs> oh, very good. Thanks again, um, Aoife. Thanks for everyone for joining. Have a great week, and we'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Be Thanks, good. Thank you. Be Thanks, Aoife. Brilliant. Bye. Well done. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone. Pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. Any will do. 
I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% better Slack community, which you can join for free and interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy, but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.